0: Alrighty, shall we uh, open our Bibles? So this morning we're going to hopefully finish off Daniel, and finish off the last part of chapter 12. But before we jump into where we got to last week, I just thought we'd do an overview before we finish off. So, yeah, the book of Daniel has been awesome, and the first six chapters are an overview of the life and times of Daniel, And the remaining chapters are a series of visions. So, what's Daniel chapter 1 about? Mm -hmm. So, Daniel chapter 1 is Daniel's decision to remain pure and not eat the king's meat and wine. He's been taken captive. Chapter 2. Yep, it's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. So, Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the big statue now the statue, the gold head represented the Babylonian Empire, the chest and arms of silver represented the Medes and the Persians, or the Mede and Persian Empire, the belly and thighs of bronze, Grecian Empire, and the legs of iron, the Roman Empire, and the feet and iron of clay. It's the revived Roman Empire led by ten kings or leaders or rulers. And it's during their reign at the time of the seven-year tribulation period that Jesus comes back. The stone that's cut without hands at the end of the dream, what's that? It's Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus coming back. The stone that is cut without hands becomes a great mountain, fills the whole earth, and completely destroys the other kingdoms. It represents the end of human government and the start of the physical kingdom of God on earth. Jesus returns and rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, followed by eternity. Now, if you look on the screen, there's a couple of verses here from Daniel chapter 2, verses 43 and 44. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay... They will mingle with the seed of men, but they would not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, later on in Daniel chapter 7, we have more information about these ten kings. These ten horns, so I'm just going to read from Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. It says, The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, that is the Roman Empire, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. Verse 26 But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So, conclusion or summary from this part. These ten kings are contemporaneous. They all reign at the same time because the Antichrist, the little horn, replaces three of them. So these ten kings minus three plus the Antichrist, they'll be ruling the earth and then defeated when Jesus comes back. Alright, so chapter three, moving along. What's chapter three about? The gold statue, so it's Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. But God saves them and God gets much glory. Chapter 4, what's chapter 4 about? Good, King Nebuchadnezzar, his dream of the tree being cut down and his humiliation and restoration. And what do we see in this? It's a beautiful picture of just how far God will go to save someone and how easy it is for a person's pride to keep them from being saved. Chapter 5. What's that about? It's Belshazzar's feast and the writing on the wall. So Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And on the night that the Medes and Persians defeated Babylon, His fate was sealed by this writing on the wall. God's hand wrote on the wall, so to speak. Chapter 6. Daniel in the lion's den. Yes, it's the plot against Daniel by the leaders of the Medes and the Persians, resulting in Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, that God saves Daniel and gets again much glory. Now, that's the end of the life and times of Daniel. Now we go into the section, the last half, where it talks about Daniel's visions. Now, the first vision in chapter 7, what's that about? The four beasts. Very good. Someone's been doing the homework. So the four beasts correspond to the four empires represented by the statue in chapter 2. So it's the same. All right, It's a repeat of what's in chapter 2 but it adds a fair bit more information. We get a bird's eye view of what will happen in heaven in the end times as God's court is set up and the Father's fiery judgment is meted or poured out on the earth with the final result being that all the nations are given to Jesus to rule and reign. So Daniel received this first vision in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Um, Chapter 8, Daniel's second vision. It's the vision of the... The ram and the goat, very good. More details about the Mede and Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire are given, and the prediction of Antioch's Epiphanes stopping the daily sacrifices and the restoration of those sacrifices after 2,300 evenings and mornings. And that, as we know, all happened. Daniel received the vision in the third year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Chapter 9 Daniel prays. So Daniel's prayer for the people is based on the 70-year prophecy in Jeremiah, which is answered. So 70 years of captivity, that God told Jeremiah that captivity would be 70 years. And God answers Daniel's prayer about the 70 years with the incredible 70 weeks prophecy concerning the nation of Israel. And this happens during the first year of Darius the Mede. Now, chapters 10 to 12 uh Daniel's third vision, and he received this during the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And it can be broken down into three parts. So chapter 10 is the spiritual warfare, the battle between angels and demons. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 34, that was an incredibly detailed prophecy of the life and times, battles and intrigues of the northern and southern Grecian sub-empires. And it finished with Antiochus Epiphanes and the abomination of desolation, that is when he defiles the temple and stops the daily sacrifices. And the last section is chapter 11 verse 36 through to chapter 12 verse 13. And it's basically jumping forward in time, and it's what it's going to be like during the last half of the tribulation period, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, as well as insight into the two distinct or different resurrections, the just and the unjust. So, we're about halfway through the last section, and we'll start our study at chapter 12, verse 3. But I'm going to read from chapter 12, verse 1 to get the context. So, first, we'll pray, Father, thank you, Lord, for the amazing life of Daniel. Lord, I just really admire him for his decision to put you first, for his decision to to make you the most important part of his life and to make loving you and obeying you and serving you and submitting to you the most important thing. And everything else comes second. Lord, he was willing to deny himself. He was willing to put himself in danger. He was willing to be persecuted. All just to maintain, all just to experience his love relationship with you. So help us, Lord, as we go through this, to. See that that's your will for us too. We pray this in Jesus' name. So, Daniel chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people, the Israelites, the Jews, shall be delivered. Every one who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars, forever and ever. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words, and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank, and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time that's three and a half years when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. That's Daniel chapter 12. So let's go to verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars ever ever so those who live in God's wisdom will shine despite the entire calamity and all the difficulty coming upon Israel God has those who are wise and they will shine now we're going through a calamity we're going through difficult times but if we are wise we will shine and a wisdom comes from the Lord And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars. So what does a wise person do? Turn many people to righteousness. So what does it mean, shine like the stars? Well, stars in the sense that we radiate light and help others to see and find their way. Because we have God living in us and his light shines through us. So the more we walk in wisdom, in love, in obedience to the Lord, the brighter we will shine, not just now, but for eternity. This is important because the brightness, the shining that we get from obeying the Lord lasts forever. It doesn't fade, it endures. Now, there's lots of things down here on this earth that we can put our effort into like family, like work, like sports, hobbies, etc. But even if they do succeed, they only give a temporary shine. God wants us to invest our lives into things that last forever and ever. And I've read this poem before. C.T. Studd wrote it. It says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So, if you want to look that one up, that's a good one to read. So, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So, this sounds strange, doesn't it? He's been given a revelation, and he's told to shut up the words and seal the book So, to shut up something implies that the words should be kept safely until the time when they're needed. It's like putting something in the freezer so it stays there for a few months until you need it again. And seal the book has a double sense of authenticating the message and preserving it. So, sealed, it's finished, it's complete. Now, it says until the time of the end. Now, Daniel's prophecy had some value for his own day. But there would come a day, the time of the end, when his prophecy would be more relevant or more important. And that's why the angel gives the instructions, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And We'll come back to that idea. Verse 4 also, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So a lot of people say oh, that's fulfilled. Guess what? People are running to and fro and knowledge has increased. Well, that's true. But there's another way of looking at this phrase. In context, it could be talking about prophecy. It could be talking about people trying to understand prophecy. I'm not saying either one is true. They both could be true. Today, for the last 150 years or so, people have been really interested, more and more interested, about finding out Answers to questions about the future, about prophecy. So whether or not physical wandering and travel is involved, the implication is that attempts to understand the truth will require considerable effort, so people will be searching for answers. So shut up the words and seal the book in verse 4. Now, Daniel has revealed enough to us so the book really can be sealed. As I said, it's complete. From Daniel 11.36 to Daniel 12.3, what we have is a world ruler, completely opposed to God, a world religion based on the abomination of desolation, a world war which defeats the ruler, a time of great tribulation for Israel lasting three and a half years. We have deliverance for the people of God after the tribulation. We have resurrection and judgment, and we have the reward of the righteous. So this section of scripture is just jam-packed with a lot of really important things. Now in verse 5, a very important question. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank, and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Again, three and a half years. And when the power of the holy people, Israel, the Jews, has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So we have two angels, one on the river bank, one on that river bank, and there's an angel like standing on the water. And these angels are talking to each other. Now, they already know what's going on. Why are they talking to each other? so Daniel can hear and so Daniel can understand. It's for Daniel's and our benefit that they're talking. In verse 7, he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever. So this angel is taking an oath that the time of trouble would last three and a half years. A time, times, and half a time. Now What's important in this phrase, a time, times, and half a time? Well, as we're going through Daniel, it talks about this a few times, and it also talks about it in Revelation. So let's just take a step back and have a look at all the times this is mentioned and why it points us to the tribulation period. Most of the time, it points us to the last half of the tribulation period. So Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 described this time times half a time as a period that the saints are given into Antichrist's hands. Daniel 9.27 described it as a period between the breaking of Antichrist's covenant with Israel, the erection of the abomination of desolation and the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. Daniel 12.7 describes it as the duration of the time of trouble for Israel. Now moving into Revelation, this is how it all links up Revelation 11.2, described as a time, or as a period that the holy city will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. Revelation 11.3, described as a period of ministry for the two witnesses, most likely the first half of the seven years. Revelation 12.6 and 12.14, described it as a period that Israel is preserved by God in the wilderness. And Revelation 13.5, described it as the duration of Antichrist's authority to rule, persecute. And blaspheme. So you put all those together and it's pretty clear that we are talking about Daniel's 70th week. Especially the last half. So the next phrase there in verse 7, it says, When the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Now in Zechariah, it gives us more details, but I'm not going to go there now for lack of time the people of Israel are going to be, they'll seem to be completely crushed. They'll almost be completely wiped out. Like half of Jerusalem will be destroyed as the Antichrist invades in that final battle. But just at that point, Messiah will return. Jesus will return and he will rescue them. Now in verse 8, Daniel Asked another question, his last question, how will it all turn out? He says, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And I like this. He says, although I heard, I did not understand. Guess what? I'm not the only one who doesn't understand everything. <laughs> okay, So prophecy can be difficult to understand. Now he heard it all firsthand, he saw it all firsthand, he still didn't understand and what shall be the end of these things? He's looking, he's anxious, he sees these terrible things happening to his people, and he's going, what's going to be the end of these things? How's it going to finish? He's worried about what's going on. And What's the answer? Well, we'll find out in verse 9 to 13. And he said, the angel said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So, the angel is in verse 9 there, it says, Go your way, Daniel. It's kind of like, hey, don't stress about this. Just stop thinking about it. Stop worrying, don't obsess about it. More details will be revealed later. But Daniel, you just get on with what God wants you to do right now. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So Daniel has to make a decision to make a mental departure from all his question and his anxiety because the revealing of these things will not come until the time of the end. And so until the time of the end, these prophecies are closed up and sealed because they're just too hard to understand. There's not enough information given yet at Daniel's time. Now, it says the wicked will keep on behaving wickedly and the righteous will behave rightly and the wise will understand at the right time. But Daniel, shut the book. It's not for your day. Now, I told you I'd come back to this shut the book thing and it's not the right time. It's going to be revealed in the end time. Well, guess what Revelation 22 verse 10 says? This is John writing roughly 95 AD Revelation 22 verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand, or the time is near. So Daniel was told to seal the book, while John was told not to seal the book. Well, guess what? We are living in the end times. When did the end times start? When Jesus came, died, and rose again, and then ascended. We live in a day when Daniel is no longer an impossible book to understand because so much of it has already come to pass. The first coming of Christ is history, and the second coming of Christ is imminent. And as I was saying previously, uh, last week and other weeks, the fulfillment of so many prophecies gives us much greater understanding of prophecy because we can see the breakup between the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment, where what prophecies is referring to the first coming? What prophecies is referring to the second coming? Before that, it was all muddled up, literally muddled up. It was just, you know, only a comma separating the first coming from the second coming, etc. So today, we have a much greater understanding. Now, the book of Revelation is opened up to us because the book of Daniel provides the key. So you can think of it as Daniel provides the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. For example, without the seventy-sevens prophecy, Revelation would be very hard to understand. Why seven years? Why all the judgments? But Daniel sets the stage and gives us a big picture or the framework that the information given in Revelation fits into. And now we're encouraged to study prophecy with a motive being that we are seeking our Lord's return, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour. Jesus Christ. That's Titus two thirteen. Moving on to verse ten, it says, "Many shall be purified, made white, and refined." And this is another prediction for what was future to Daniel. Because at his time, could anyone be made white? No. Jesus hadn't died yet. Okay. So this only is possible after the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But the wicked shall do wickedly. And we can apply this to the end because in the end times, as the scriptures say in several places, uh, for example, the love of many will grow cold because sin will abound. And in Timothy, in the end times, men will be lovers of themselves, etc. There's lots of places where it says wickedness will abound. And it will abound especially as the Antichrist rules. But an innumerable multitude will also be saved the wise will understand the wise are those who respond to the truth who humble themselves and respond to the truth and you want to know who those people are you can read revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 so tribulation saints and from the time verse 11 and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up there should be 1290 days so basically the abomination of desolation when the antichrist sets up a statue of himself in the temple and demands that people worship himself as god happens at the midpoint of the tribulation and so jesus is giving us a specific prophecy here and this is why jesus pointed to daniel's prophecy about the abomination of desolation as the sign that would mark the immediacy of his return that he's going to come back real soon. And he gives it the number of days. And you find that in Matthew twenty four fifteen. And verse 12, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Now, it seems confusing. You've got 1,260 days, which is your three and a half years. Then you've got 1,290 days, which is an extra 30 days. And then it says, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. That's an extra 45 days. So You've got your seven years, plus another 30 days, plus another 45 days. What's going on? Well, at the end of the 1,260 days, or three and a half years, Jesus returns and steps down on the Mount of Olives, which splits in two. And you can read more about that in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 4, and on. At the end of the 1,290 days, it's 30 days later, Jesus' government is officially installed, the Millennial Temple built and dedicated, and the world's remaining population is all gathered to Israel. So you can imagine that would take a month. That's pretty quick for a month, actually. And at the end of the 1,335 days, that's another 45 days' time, the nations are judged. Now, why do I say that? Because blessed is he who comes to the end of the 1,335 days. So it's 45 days later. And I believe that this is talking about the sheep and goat judgment. So I'm just going to read that passage from Matthew Matthew 25, 31-46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So this is Jesus when he comes back. All the nations will be gathered before him. As I said before, all the nations need to come to Israel. And he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, those people go on into the millennial reign in their physical bodies. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, in the context of this, is talking about how people treated the people of Israel. The next part. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. My brethren. When you did it to the my brethren, you did it to me again, as I'm saying it's pointing to how people treated the Israelites, the Jews in those last or those last seven years even. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, this is the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice prepared for the devil and his angels. You only go there if you choose not to go to heaven, choose not to accept God's gift of forgiveness. 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you or serve you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, think back to the Holocaust. Think back to people like Corrie ten Boom. These people had to make a life or death choice. Do I help the Jews? Or do I go along with the Antichrist? (laughs) In that case, it was the Holocaust of the Germans. But that's kind of what it's going to be like. Imagine it being like in that seven-year tribulation period, especially in the last three and a half years when the Antichrist turns against the Jews. It's going to be kind of like living in Germany during the time of the Holocaust. You've got to make a choice. You've got to choose a side. So it seems that through this 45-day period, from the 1,290 days to the 1,335 days, there is a time of judgment for those who have lived through and survived The tribulation period, they've all been gathered to Israel. Now those who put their faith in God, and that's evidenced by the way they treat the Jews, the people of Israel, they're going to live on into the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus, while the unbelievers, especially those who took the mark of the beast in the second half of the tribulation period, they're going to be cast into hell to await their final judgment at the great white throne judgment, which will take place at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, the last verse there. But you, go your way till the end, for you shall rest. And you will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So what can we get from this verse 13? Every man has his way to go. Every person has a plan for them. What does Ephesians say? Chapter 2. Created for good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Now every man has an end. We all have an end point to our lives. Now it says, for you shall rest. There's a rest provided for the people of God. And there's also an inheritance provided for the people of God. It says, you will arise to your inheritance. So we are all going to arise to our inheritance. We're going to receive our reward. It's interesting that it says here, at the end of the days. So this seems to indicate that the Old Testament saints will not resurrect until the end of the seven-year tribulation period, it says, and will arise or resurrect to your inheritance at the end of the days. So at the end of the seven years, the Old Testament saints will resurrect as well and they'll be dwelling with the church in the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Why do I think that? Well, it says it there, but also because it fits the Jewish marriage feast scenario you can read about in John fourteen, one to four, where the bride is taken into seclusion for seven days and then she's revealed. Okay, that's a really short version of that. And so we're gonna be in heaven for seven years instead of seven days, and then we're gonna be revealed, and the first thing that'll happen in that time is the wedding feast. So I just want to finish the book of Daniel by focusing on Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So today we have Oscar winners and light Medal winners, but we're talking about soul winners. and an angel has come and told Daniel that he who desires to shine as the stars forever and ever will commit himself to winning souls, to sharing the truth of the gospel with others. Now, do you find that elsewhere in the New Testament? I think you do. It's 1 Corinthians fifteen forty to 42 There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different to the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. So in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a lot about the resurrection body. That's where we find a lot about what the resurrection body is going to be like. So, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul talks about the bodies we're going to be given in eternity. We're going to have bodies designed for heaven. But Paul points out that the glory of one star differs from another star. So how much we're going to shine is going to differ from one person to another. So if you know Jesus as your saviour, you're definitely going to heaven. But when we get to heaven, the Bible says that crowns will be given to us for the service that we have rendered to the Lord here on earth. Now some people might say, I have no desire to walk around with a crown on my head in heaven, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that these crowns are going to be laid at the feet of Jesus. Are you going to have something to give to him to show your appreciation for what he's done for you? That should be our motivation. We want to have something to give to him for what he's done for us. To show our appreciation for all he has done for us when you see him face to face. But it's more than that even. The crowns will determine what, kind of star we are in heaven, or how bright we're going to shine. Paul is saying that there will be different intensities. And some people might say, well, I don't really care how bright I shine in heaven as long as I'm there. Fair enough. Think of it this way. We had little girls a long time ago. They're growing up. But there was a time when being in the kitchen was very noisy, because they would pull the pans out of the cupboard. And they'd bang them, and they'd had a great time with their pots and pans. And they'd giggle, and they'd have the time of their lives. Yet, for me, I have no desire to sit on the floor and play with pots and pans. My capacity to understand and enjoy life is way beyond banging on pots and pans. My world is bigger. My experience is greater. So too in heaven, we're all going to be happy. Everyone will be elated, but our capacities will differ. Everyone will be filled to the brim, but the size of the cups will differ. Some will be great big barrels filled to the top. Some will be tiny teacups also filled to the brim. So it's talking about our capacity to enjoy heaven when we get there. So the the ones, little teacups, are people who've like, They've rendered no real service to the Lord. They just cruise through life watching TV and waiting to move on into eternity. Yeah, you know, I'm going to heaven. You know, I'll do a little bit for God. I might go to church. You know, I'll spend most of my time watching TV and doing things I want to do. But others, because they're wise on earth, because they were faithful, because they abided in Jesus, because they were soul winners, they have greater capacities in heaven. Now, does the Bible support what I'm saying? I think it does. Is pictured by two things greater responsibilities. Luke nineteen, I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's so a long. It's Luke nineteen, eleven to twenty seven, but it's a parable of the ten miners or the ten silver coins. The ruler is leaving town for a while and he gives his servants one silver miner each. Now, one of them used that one miner to earn another ten silver miners ten silver coins, another earned another five miners from his one silver coin, and another just did nothing. Guess what? The one who earned ten miners, the one who worked the hardest, he got to rule over ten cities. The one who earned five miners from his one miner, the silver coin, got to rule over five cities. So. Another picture is the beamer seat. We don't want to miss this picture. We don't want to just make it to heaven by the skin of our teeth. Or as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse twelve fifteen says, saved as though through fire. We need to be wise. We need to enlarge our capacity to experience eternity by abiding in Christ and then winning souls, sharing the gospel. Now I want to read that beamer seat judgment because this is talking about what we're going to experience when we get to heaven. It's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 15. Just a bit of background, the beamer seat is the podium that the Olympic competitors would stand on. It's a judgment of reward. Okay, So if you do really well, you get first place. If you're not so good, you get second place. If you're not so good, you get third place, etc. So that's the picture here, it's a sports analogy. So I start at verse 5 in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It is not important who does a planting or who does a watering. What's important is that God makes a seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. Okay, Notice that. Both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. Verse 10. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. This is the foundation. It's the gospel. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of grace. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire, remember? God judges by fire. Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. It's a pretty graphic picture of what it's going to be like. So again, the beamer seat judgment is a judgment of reward, not condemnation. And Paul adds another picture here of building on a foundation. If you build a strong house, it will survive the testing. If you haven't built a strong house, it will fall apart. And anything that's not of eternal value will be burned up. So Christians will be rewarded for what they did that was motivated by love. That is done through the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, what we did when we were controlled by the Holy Spirit and not dominated by a sinful nature. You can read that in Romans 8, 5 and 6. Now the other thing I want you to notice here is that the work we are being rewarded for is primarily evangelism. The foundation referred to in 1 Corinthians 3.10 is the gospel of grace. So beware of the other false gospels out there, the legalism gospel, which tells people that are saved by what they do, by their own deeds or righteousness, they must do certain things and keep certain rules and rituals, or, God will make your life better gospel. Come to Jesus and he will bless your socks off. <laughs> Both lack repentance and generally produce false converts because people are not sorry for their sin. They don't see themselves as sinners and therefore don't realize the need for salvation. And there's a really good song by Bob Hartman that captures the essence of what the beamer seat judgment will be like. It says, When our labor or retire, there will be a trial by fire. Will your treasure pass the test or will it burn up with the rest? You may build upon a sure foundation with your building interlapidation. When it all comes down to rubble, will it be wood, hay or stubble or precious stones, gold and silver? Are you really sure? And we all will stand at the beamer seat or it will be revealed it will be complete. Will there be reward in the fiery heat when we see our lives at the beamer seat? And he goes on, next verse. Every talent will be surely counted. Every word will have to be accounted Not a story will be left untold. We will stand and watch the truth unfold. Every score will be even, nothing to defend. And then the last verse, every building will be shaken, every motive will be tried. He'll give reward to the faithful. Will you receive or be denied. So we're going to stand there and our life will be on a big screen and only the things that are done for God will last. Everything else is going to be burnt up. So, the gospel of grace. The gospel is the good news. And we have been given this awesome opportunity, this privilege of sharing the gospel with other people. The Bible is a love letter written to us describing how God, our Savior, came to earth to live a perfect life and die in my place so that I don't have to, if I choose to accept his payment for my sins on my behalf. So we're talking about soul winning. How do you win souls? We share the gospel. What is the gospel? 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another verse is 1 John 2 1 and 2. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is the way to have our sins forgiven, which is a big problem. Now, my favorite verses, I think, in the whole Bible are these ones. It's 2 Corinthians five sixteen to 21 I'll start at verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God, He brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. So just pause there. We're saved. We become a new person. What's the purpose of being a new person? Well, we've given this task of reconciling people back to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin or be sin for us so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So my sin has been forgiven. I'm living this new life. But what does this new life look like? Another one of my favorite verses. Galatians five nineteen and 20. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements, so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for me, as a teenager, I struggled I tried to keep the law. I tried to do my best. I tried to keep all those requirements. And it condemned me because I couldn't do it. So, what did I do? By the grace of God, I was someone shared the truth about grace with me. And I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements, stopped trying to be good enough for God, Stop trying to do all the things I thought I should do as a good Christian. Stop trying to do all that so that I might live for God. So my old self has been crucified. The old life is gone. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not me who does the living. It's not me who does the good works. It's not me who does the loving. It's Christ doing it all through me. I'm going to put this on the screen. In other words, being successful in the Christian life is not about trying harder to be good, but rather loving more. Why? Well, the more I love God, the more I will trust him and therefore surrender to his will and allow Jesus to live his life through me. What I will be rewarded for in heaven is simply the fruit, the fruit of loving and abiding in Christ. It's a work that God does in me, not that I do myself. I'm literally led and controlled and empowered by the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. So it's an amazing thing that God will reward us for something that we didn't do. God is doing it in us. It's the power of His Spirit. So I want to come back to where I first started in the book of Daniel. If you remember what that was, it was Daniel... Chapter 6, verse 10. For me, this is a highlight, the big verse in Daniel. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his window open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Daniel loved his God. He wanted nothing more than to spend time with God, and therefore, because he was abiding with God, he bore much fruit for God, and God was glorified in that. So, to conclude, what are the three most important factors in our Christian walk? So, there's three things. What do you think the first one is? Three factors, three important factors in our Christian walk to have a successful Christian walk. The first one's important, it's my relationship with God. Okay. The second one's even more important. Remember this, the second one, it's my relationship with God. Okay. Now the third one, write this one down, put an asterisk next to it, it's my relationship with God. (laughs) Why? Because I'm not abiding in Christ, which means walking with God, listening to God by reading His love letter to me, keeping myself in the love of God, keeping in step with God and remaining pure, then God cannot work through me because my life is dominated by my sinful nature. I'm not being controlled by the Spirit. My life becomes a waste. Yes, I'm saved, forgiven, but there is so much potential for all of us. We need to be abiding in Christ, which means at home with Christ. He needs to be the focus of our life. And the fruit of our relationship with Christ is all the things we do. It's the way we love people. It's the way we witness. It's the boldness we have to witness. It's the serving people, doing things for them. That's just the fruit of our relationship with God. We don't have to try and do it. It just happens. What we do need to try and do is to focus on our relationship with God. And think about this. The book of Daniel was made possible by a man and his three friends who were willing to forsake all and commit themselves into God's care and to put their relationship with him above everything else. They made God the most important part of their lives, which means that their entire life was about loving God, which meant that they spent time with God in prayer and in the word and remained pure. And the result, over an 80-year time period, at least for Daniel, the entire known world repeatedly heard the truth about the glorious and majestic true God, and were given the opportunity to put their faith in him and worship him. The entire known world, in all those different languages, the truth went out because of the faithfulness of these guys, and all they had to do was focus on their relationship with God. They prayed, they read the word, they fellowshiped together. They will be shining bright when we see them resurrected. They will have a lot of fruit, a lot of reward. And all they had to do was spend time with the Lord. Abide. So just remember, we don't spend time with God because it's the right thing to do and we have to. Rather, it's because we want to. My motive needs to be, well, if I don't spend time with God and read his word and keep myself unspotted from the world, then my relationship with God will suffer and I will grieve God. I don't want to do that. Therefore, I'm going to choose to make my love relationship with God the most important part of my life I only do those things which cause me to grow in my love for God, which means I want to spend time with him, read his word, and keep myself pure. Last verse. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him, that means committed to their relationship with God, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So, abiding in Christ is hard because we have to make some hard choices. I must choose to deny myself and instead choose to put God first. Yes, I am going to miss out on some things. Yes, I will persecute it. But in the light of eternity, the choice to forsake the things of this world is a no-brainer. So, finally, remember the fruit that we bear in Christ will last for eternity. It will bring the Father much glory and me much reward. And I've always thought it strange that God reward me for the things that he does through me and in me. So, let us focus on this one thing: forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus is calling us Philippians three thirteen and fourteen Father, I thank you for the book of Daniel, Lord. I'm just really encouraged I'm uplifted um Lord Daniel is a and his three friends there they just they loved you, they put you first, they spent time with you they prioritize their lives so that you were first, their relationship with you was first. And as a result, you were able to use them mightily. Lord, I pray that the same can be true for us today and in the future, that Lord, that in our lives, we can make you the first priority. Lord, we can make you the desire of our hearts and we can experience a deep love relationship with you. We can abide in you and you in us. We can make our home with you and you make our home with us. We feel at home with you, be at home with you which means that we won't be at home in the world. We'll be strangers and sojourners in this world. So I just pray that you'll give us that strength, Father. Put those desires into us, as you promised in Philippians 2, because you work in us both to will and to do. Lord, don't let it be a self-effort thing, but rather be a surrender thing, a dying to self. Help us to know the difference between doing the right thing for the right thing's sake and doing it for a relationship. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.